Hey guys, this is uh, going to be a little bit of a different episode today. Um, I, uh, as as many of you who listen to the show or or follow me on Twitter know, I've been kind of grappling with the data of this coronavirus or COVID uh, that's been going around, trying to get a better handle on what's going on. I know that there's been a lot of talk of well, there's been a lot of doomsaying, and there's been a lot of well, I haven't seen a whole lot of uh, upbeat posts. <laughs> And uh, I guess I've been trying to occupy a little bit of that space, although I think there is still a lot of a lot to be concerned about, um, as I'll as I'll go into. But um, over the weekend, I I um, I kind of funneled a lot of energy into writing down my thoughts on this and trying to go and seek actual conclusive hard data where I could. Uh, a lot of that proved to be fairly difficult, um, as you I mean, as you can imagine, uh, a rapidly unfolding situation like this, uh, using data that you have to aggregate from different countries and then different states and localities and private hospitals and so on and so forth, it becomes really difficult. Um, and then not to mention there, there's the, you know, lots of this data is be, is based on, you know, it really revolves around a, a, a positive COVID test or negative COVID test. And as we've seen here, they're not really testing, um, not not on the not on the scale that they should be. And and um, as I'm going to get into, uh, they're particularly concerning. There is not necessarily like if you take a snapshot today and say, "Wow, they made it, they they sent a, or they did a lot of tests today." Um, well, you know, the most important part about understanding COVID and particularly its um, level of effect on the U.S. would be identifying the trend, whether it's trending up or down. If it's trending down, if, in other words, if less and less people are becoming affected, it would mean that uh, we're on the backside of that exponential curve, you know, flattening that curve. Um, it, it's not to say that you couldn't get another spike, um, but, uh, you know, exiting flu season and, and that sort of thing, uh, I, I would think that if we were on the backside of that curve, exercising some caution, I think we, we would you know, it would mean that our hospitals had already hit peak load and are already on the way back down. So they could they theoretically, you know, begin to scale down the the emergency operation. But, um, you know, I, I'm not really seeing a whole lot of there's there's some things that I'm not seeing being discussed. Um, and then there's things that I think are focused on way too much. Uh, but anyway, I, I, I published a, a medium post. I just made a burner account and it's quarantined in Seattle. And you may recognize that as a little bit of a play on Sleepless in Seattle, which starred Tom Hanks, um, who has coronavirus. And then also it is one of the most affected areas. Maybe that's a little bit of a glib joke, but nonetheless, here we go. So I'm going to skip around a little bit and I'm not going to read verbatim and I'm also not going to cite any sources in the podcast because it's just going to become tedious, uh, but trust, well, don't trust, please go look. I have, I have cited basically everything. I, I don't think that there's anything I'm not really citing and where I'm making estimations, I, I say so. Um, and, I, and maybe I can take this podcast to um, go into some of the things that I couldn't really fit in text or didn't really you know, know how to fit into text. And also, I just I, I don't like writing all that much. So, um, you know, it, it just it becomes, you know, this ended up being about 10 pages. So it was starting to become a little bit burdensome. But uh, so I guess I'll start with uh, methods, um, and I'm so I'm I'm trying to identify um, groups and and rates. So groups of people um, and rates of disease spread and and you know other 
trends. So that's the first section here. There are varying opinions on how many people actually exhibit symptoms severe enough to prompt them to become tested once the, once they have contracted COVID or simply cannot get tested due to prioritization or lack of testing supplies. As we look at data, there are subgroups within the greater total COVID affected group that cannot be accurately accounted for in data. The fast paced nature of the response would demand some estimations to be made, but the groups are as follows. And this is how I'm going to try and break down um, how many people have actually had COVID. And for this iteration, I'm just, uh, I'm setting up um, the more, the framework and then we can get into each country that I, that I looked at. But um, what I'm noticing is that there could be, and it, unfortunately there's no way for me to prove that I'm right, but in looking at it, you would suspect that I must be, I, I think, I, I think I lay out a fairly convincing case, but um, I'm concerned about the, the huge gap um, in um, total people who have been confirmed to have coronavirus uh, by test, by lab test, and then the much bigger group of how many people have actually had this thing. Um, and, and so here is my method of how I'm going to get to that. So here I've, I've, I've put, I've got three different categories and one is asymptomatic and that's those who never exhibit symptoms and no hospitalization. And, and so I don't think that they're going in the vast, vast, vast majority of cases, um, they're not going to get tested now, you know, perhaps politicians or, or people that are connected or NBA or what, you know, you can, you can make those examples, but for the purposes of data, I, I think that it's very fair to assume that the asymptomatic, uh, uh, carriers, I guess, of the disease would would not be tested. So I looked at the Diamond Princess um, uh, ship, the cruise ship. Uh, I believe that's what I did. I'm not going to click through my <laughs> references, so uh, just to open up a bunch of web links. Uh, but I think that's what I was citing there. Um, uh, yes, results from the Diamond Pr Princess passengers, which I think was a great uh, control group. You know, unfortunate. I don't want people to have disease and. Uh, but, uh, it, you know, it happened and you, you got to collect data, uh, to prevent further misery. So, um, in that control group, they were saying that they said 17% of people, uh, of the, I think it was two or 300 people in that group did not exhibit any symptoms. They, they were asymptomatic. So I, I rounded that to 20. I allowed myself that Liberty to, to round it up, um, just for, for, even even numbers. I, I don't think, you know, the other thing to keep in mind, and for those that are not um, of like engineering or math backgrounds, there's an idea, it's called sig figs, and it's called significant figures. And um, without going too far into it, it's like you don't want to use too precise of a number for um, estimating things that you really don't have an idea about. Like, if I were to guess the weight of my car, or that's a bad example, because it's rated, but if I were to guess the weight of a picnic bench, I might not say it's uh, 47.5986 pounds because really I have no idea what, you know, it's you, you, sig figs, right? You would probably just try to keep it to two, two places or three or whatever the case may be. Anyway, um, so uh, the second group is m mildly symptomatic and or symptomatic untested. So I called this MSU. Um, those that feel mild symptoms, but carry on about their life and no hospitalization. Uh, there's no, and, and, you know, uh, there's no great way to, to estimate this. There just isn't, this is probably the biggest, um, just obstacle to grapple with when we're looking at this disease is I, is, I mean, 70%, I, you know, who knows? I, I, I got to assume it's, it's big because, 
you know, the hospitals were not testing in the U.S. I mean, nobody's testing in the U.S. There's so few tests. Um, oh, keep in mind that I wrote this over the weekend, and I have, I've kind of taken a step back. So, I, I and, you know, if something's changed, I'll update the article. But, at the, you know, at the time of writing, I think the U.S. had, had, had um, performed something like 40,000 tests or something, which is statistically nothing. I mean, so, so few tests. Um, so, uh, I, you know, I got I to gotta estimate that that's – that number particularly here is very high. So I, I put it at, at, uh, 70%. Then I put, uh, symptomatic tested. Um, so those that felt symptoms go to the hospital, get tested and are positive. They don't have to go to the hospital, I guess, but they just test positive. So, um, and that is just the remaining percentage when you subtract the other groups away from the TCA, the total COVID affected. So TCA equals AS plus MSU plus ST, which is total COVID affected, um, uh, effective, um, equals asymptomatic plus, what did I call it? Mildly symptomatic and or symptomatic untested plus uh, symptomatic tested. So uh, for the math, symptomatic tested equals 100% minus uh, 20 plus 70. So you come out to 10%. So all of that is to say that when I'm looking at the numbers, I'm assuming that the total amount of people that have had coronavirus are 10 times greater than the people that have tested positive. Now, of course, this these numbers would change, um, the, or this multiplier uh, would cha- it will change according to country. It will change over time. Um, it's a very changeable number. I'm not I'm not married to 10%. I'm just estimating it right now um, as a baseline, and, and, and I'll adjust it a little bit as I go along the way, and I'll explain why. But uh, according to the estimate above, I'm using the assumption that the subgroup ST is around 10% of the total COVID affected for... Uh, for General estimation. This obvious. Okay, never mind. I just went into that. Um, so, uh, from that. Uh, okay, so here we go. Note that this will not be a good guide for the USA, where the ST was zero percent uh, until January twenty first, twenty twenty, when the CDC, when the first CDC labs tests came back as positive. From that point, it very gradually increased, uh, but because. Only around 40,000 tests recognized by the CDC as of March 20th, 2020. I would venture that the ST is near 1%. I mean, it's it's probably between one and one and ten. I I'd bet it's I bet it's close to one. I, it even could be orders of magnitude below one. I mean, how many again? How many people are really tested? And if this disease is as transmissible as everyone claims that it is, then I mean, this thing's probably probably a lot of people have this disease that uh, are not testing positive. So, um. If it is not less than 1% at this point in the U.S., we need to be asking questions about how transmissible the disease truly is in order to remodel growth curves. You know, that, that, that's a very important part of, of estimating this thing. So um, just to give you an idea, again, you, you'll have to go to this to, to this website to see the updated number. But according to this is worldometers.info. I, you know, I don't know. This isn't a stat that I'm relying on. But you could easily calculate it yourself. It says the U.S. administered 26 tests per million people as of March 9th, 2020. So it's, you know, we're really in shaky territory in terms of uh, that stat. Um, okay, so getting into Wuhan. So here, uh, 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 Twitter Twitter friend um, in, the, in the old in-group uh, actually hooked me up with some awesome resources. He was super, super helpful. Stateless Med, if you, if, uh, thank you so much. And if you're not following him, go check him out. Um, 
Uh, so he, I, I think he doesn't have an opinion on this or, or, or not. I don't want to say that. I just don't want to associate him with what I'm doing. He was just hooking me up with, with, uh, places for, uh, medical data. So in Wuhan statistics, according to the new England journal of metal medicine in an article published on February 28th, 2020. And I link it in here, a study of 1099 patients with lab confirmed COVID showed the following breakdown. So it was 41.9% male, 58.1%, I'm sorry, I may have misspoke, 41.9% female, 58.1% male. The median age was 47. Uh, 23.7% had at least one coexisting illness. Uh, median incubation period of the disease was four days. Remember, we early on, we were hearing like 14 days, and, and it certainly can, and some people, I think it can lay latent, but... Uh, the median, as they were studying, was was saying four days. To give you an idea, the flu is one to three. So it definitely is a longer incubation period uh, than the flu, but um, not nearly as long as we originally suspected, I think. So of all of those 1,099 patients, 55 patients, or 5% of the total, were admitted to the ICU. 25 patients, or 2.3% of total, needed mechanical ventilators, and 15 patients, or 1.4% of total, deceased. So... Um, this data was obtained from medical records of hospitalized patients and outpatients with lab-confirmed COVID between December 11th, 2019 and January 29th, 2020. Only laboratory-confirmed cases were included either by high-throughput sequencing or RT-PCR. I don't claim to know anything about those things. I just put it in here because I saw it noted in the report. Uh, that is that is absolutely outside of my <laughs> area of expertise. Uh, this was a sample size of 14.2% of all of the 7,736 patients who had been hospitalized and confirmed to have COVID in mainland China as of January 29th, 2020. Um, so, you know, it's a seventh or eighth, whatever it is, a seventh, I guess, close to, uh, of all of the confirmed positive cases in China at that date. You know, so it, it's, I'd like a bigger sample size than 1,099, but frankly, it's it's not bad. It's, it's a decent chunk. Uh, in the instance of Wuhan, if the ST is 10%, of the TCA, so again, our standard 10x multiplier, then the statistical TCA that we would calculate for is 1,099 divided by 10%, or just times 10, equals 10,990. The new TCA is 10,990. So that means um, that uh, we have to adjust. Um, let me see what, how I laid this out so I don't double over myself. Uh, yes, so that means we have to adjust um, the denominator when dividing out the percentages for admission to ICU, um, mechanical ventilator uh, necessity, and then deceased, so the mortality rate. So when you do that, um, you find that the new denominator is 10,990, and so you can just simply move the decimal over one side, one one place to the left. So you have 0.5% of all affected um, or all who carry the disease are admitted to the ICU, so half percent, a quarter percent, 0.23% of total needed ventilators, and then 0.14% were deceased. Uh, so just to give you an idea, typically the flu is, I think is estimated to have around, I mean, it's a, there are many strains and I'm not going to go neurotic about it, but I think it's around a 10th of a percent, 0.1%. And so this, according to my multiplier showing something, um, you, you know, resembling the flu in that regard, in my opinion. Um, it should be noted that this is just a sample of the overall to total COVID affected over the course of time in China, but it is a big enough sample size. So there I go into the sample size a little bit. Um, 
So, other factors. This is something that I was talking about on Twitter last week uh, a lot, and I wanted to, and it, it, it's it's really, it's a little bit, I don't want to say it's squishy, because I actually believe it's very, very important and a critical piece of the puzzle here, but it's not, um, you know, it's very easy to get a statistic from if you have 10 people and you test them all for COVID and two come back positive, then you would say that 20% of those people have COVID. You know, it's like, that's an easy statistic to get. That's an easy piece of data. Um, whether it's representative of anything important is kind of a different question, but um, it's, it's, it's firm, I guess is what I'm getting at. So other factors. Understanding that COVID is a respiratory disease, there are a few factors I looked into to see if there were commonalities between the areas hit hardest, namely Wuhan and Northern Italy. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I may add some others, but th- this was primarily a comparison between Wuhan and Northern Italy, where, you know, as the news has shown, uh, it, the, things are not going so hot. Um, the age of the affected populace. Respiratory function deteriorates with age, particularly after 50. Um, and we don't know the median age of Wuhan. Uh, I couldn't find any real data that I was pleased with. Uh, you know, it's China. They're kind of locked down. But uh, but I would assume that it trends towards the older side due to China's birth restrictions uh, in recent years. I, I, would, I think that's a very safe um, estimation to make. Uh, that, you know, compared to other countries, it, it trends uh, older. Um, sex ratio. It's, it's been indicated the virus is worse among men, and China has the ninth most extreme ratio of men to women uh, of major countries. So that that's pretty that's pretty extreme. I, I think that was I think that, again that's because of one of those weird ass policies that they have about like you know having sons and shit like that. I don't know what the hell that is, but it's pretty crazy. Uh, tobacco use. Tobacco use weakens respiratory function. Estimated twenty seven point one percent of Chinese use tobacco. And and here's the here's the real stat that I think is interesting is fifty two point one percent of men use tobacco. Um, now this is a rather backwoods province. I think uh, I know that they are modern and industrial and important uh, in the global world of commerce. But I, I think. Um, by and large, I think it is a little bit more, you know, maybe it resembles a little bit more of like steel country here, um, uh, than it does, um, you know, perhaps Portland, Oregon or, or, or Los Angeles. And, and so it could be the case that the tobacco use there is a little bit higher as well. Uh, so I've got the citation there, air pollution, living amongst the dirty air over time degrades respiratory function. So it's no secret that China has a huge air pollution problem. They have for a long time, um, very, dirty air over there. Uh, and Wuhan is a hub for steel production, which is why I made that analogy earlier, um, in the greater province, which is, you know, creates dirty air. It's, it's just very industrial area. And you can look at, you know, if you say Wuhan and that province, I can't remember. It starts with a G. I can't remember what it is. Um, are 30 or 40 years behind us, uh, in the industrial revolution or 50 or 60 years or whatever you think it is and go back and, look at the rivers in the air around Pittsburgh and, and, and that area and get an idea for it. You know, there's particulates there that, are, that I'm sure would serve to weaken respiratory function. So, um, much of social distancing, isolation and assembly reduction practices we can employ will serve to quote unquote, flatten the curve. I'm sure you've heard that recently of total COVID affected, um, thereby reducing the peak demand for hospitals, bed, hospital beds, ICUs, and mechanical ventilators. So too can we employ practices that serve to quote-unquote spike the curve or increase the peak demand for these same things. Once peak demand is surpassed, the hospital becomes overrun. It becomes very mathematically difficult to catch up. The problem compounds through second-order effects and creates a very ugly scene. You know, you're seeing it in Wuhan. 
Uh, based on the above data, the populace of Wuhan would appear to exhibit factors that might serve to spike the curve, namely tobacco use, um, male-dominant population, and exposure to air, air, uh, air pollution. Uh, so one thing I wanted to do an explainer on, I'm not sure if people understand the concept of flattening the curve. It's, it's um, you know, it, it, people have been throwing it around. It's, it's a really common thing in engineering, to, particularly civil engineering, to, to seek to find um, peak density or, or uh, like peak rates. Um, so like when you're designing, um, say a storm sewer pipe, uh, you're not designing for, you want to find like the biggest storm that is going to happen over the course of let's, let's just say for this example, one year, and then you would just design it to carry that storm. Um, if you received I'm trying to think of, I'm doing this on the fly, so it's a little bit ugly, but let me, let me do it like this. Um, so if you can imagine that we had a hospital and it had one bed and, uh, there was one person who got sick, um, every month, uh, that needed one month of hospital bed service. Um, that one bed hospital could theoretically, as long as you stuck to that data, I know that's outlandish, but just to understand the concept, um, as long as you stuck to that um, data, that one room hospital would be able to service that, that population. Um, but if 12 people in one month need that hospital bed, you got a problem. It's overrun, even though over the course of the year, the same amount of people have, you know, would be recorded with this morbidity. Um, so anyway, so flattening the curve is just flattening that peak demand, which is something that we strive to do like a lot in, in just all kinds of engineering design. So, uh, or designing for it rather than uh, reducing it. But in this case, we want to reduce it. So, um, in Italy, uh, unfortunately I don't speak Italian and many of the sources still have not been translated. Uh, I don't really trust Google translate for this type of stuff. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm kind of dead in the water there, but I am relying on JAMA, J-A-M-A, the Journal of, of the American Medical Association for data. They had some okay data. Uh, I wasn't thrilled with it, not like uh, the New England Journal. Um, I hope I'm not pissing anybody off with that opinion. I, I, I have no idea what these journals were before two, three or four days ago, so I only have three articles to base my judgment on, but uh, in any case. Um, so, this, according to the JAMA, um, according to JAMA in an article published on March 17th, 2020, uh, a study of 22,512 patients with laboratory confirmed COVID from data uh, taken up until March 15th showed the following breakdown. So again, data starts whenever it was, January, February, ends March 15th, and they have, the sample size is, is very good. I mean, I, this is great. 22,512, that's fantastic. I love that sample size. Uh, 59.8% male, 40.2% female. Again, a huge, um, uh, male dominant, uh, virus, I guess I you know, who knows, uh, median age was 64. The median age of all of these patients was 64. That is a bonkers stat. Um, so, oh, and here, this, this stat absolutely blew me away. 52.3% of deaths were in people aged 80, 80 or over. That's insane. So, I mean, just sit on that for a second, for a second. That's the, that's just, I mean, people are, the fact that people are living that long, you know, is, is pretty, is, is great news. Um, 
So 1,625 out of 22,512 deceased for a 7.2% unadjusted mortality rate. Um, so, and I think people will call this case fatality rate, um, which is something that I kind of learned more as I was diving into these things, but I wish I had done that in the article. But uh, so 7.2%, that's alarming. That's really alarming. We see that flash in the news a lot. I mean, you know, it's crazy mortality rates um, that are being reported over there. Uh, but, you know, again, I'm going to come in and I'm going to try and clean up that that data into something that um, might be more workable and, you know, or more representative of the real world. So testing in Italy has dramatically increased in recent days, but for the duration from which most of the data, uh, the, the above data was collected, Italy had only tested 60,761 60, people as of March 9th, uh, 2020. Um, in the instance of Italy, if the ST is 10% of the TCA, seemingly very conservative, I, I would venture. I mean, Italy is basically right where we were at, or we are at right now. Um, at that time, although they have a lower population, so I guess you could a much lower population, so I guess you could you could account for that. But um, in any case, then the statistical TCA that we would should calculate for is uh, twenty two thousand five hundred and twelve. The sample size divided by ten, ten percent. That is, excuse me. So again, move the decimal over 20, 20, 225,120 is the greater. The, the, the amount of people that I estimate had the virus. So then you move the decimal of the mortality rate over uh, to the left. So the mortality rate now is 0.72%. I mean, that that's still horrible. That, you know, that's that's not a great, that, that's that's ugly. I mean, you don't want to see something like that. Again, the flu with 0.1 is, is pretty devastating as it is. There's a lot of people that die by the flu, 0.7, Jesus. Uh, but... Um, you know, it, it, it's and not only that, but it's it's showing five times higher than Wuhan, which is wild. Um, so I say this is certainly alarming. But looking at the statistics, the age of the affected patients is of note. For reference, Italy's average lifespan is around eighty-two years. So um, among those aged below eighty, the mortality rate drops into a much closer statistical correlation with Wuhan, especially when considering the accuracy of the inputs. Um, so. You know, it's it's uh, again, it, it's it's crazy. Um, just that that you know, the ages. I'm I'm I really am blown away um, uh, at, at how that split out. I mean, and 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 I think we're anecdotally seeing that, though I can't really support it. But it does seem like it is uh, very. It's it's something that you do not really want to mess around with, and if you're if you're um, in your older age. Uh, okay. Uh, so much like Wuhan, the population of Italy and specifically Northern Italy share many common traits, the age of affected populace, um, respiratory function deteriorates with age, particularly after 50, Italy is the third oldest quote unquote large country, uh, by median age. And it's 45.5 years old. I think it's the fifth largest country technically, but one of them is Monaco and one of them is something I had never even heard of, you know, some island, God forsaken island somewhere or something like that. Um, uh, so I think it's behind like Germany and something else. And I, I don't even remember, but it, it is a, it, it's a, a very old uh, country by, by median age. So I think that's, you know, of note tobacco use, tobacco use weakens respiratory function. Italy ranks 41st in the world in cigarette c consumption per capita. Um, what I was finding was that Northern Italy, uh, particularly, uh, it was heavy smokers. So it says 19% of Milan residents currently smoke cigarettes, which is staggering. I think New York City is 12 or 13%. I wish I'd put that in here. I, I, I looked it up, but I couldn't find it. Um, 
And so yeah, that's that's wild. And, and I mean, in recent in years before, you know, it's trending down. Um, so that means that if you go back in time, it's trending up. And so what was it 10 years ago? I mean, that person's still alive, maybe, possibly, probably. Um, so there, you know, was it 25% 10 years ago? I don't you know. Maybe I should have put that in here, but um, 25%. Well, here, this leads into it. 25% of, of Milan residents are former smokers. So you have almost half the population that is current or former cigarette smokers. I mean, that would certainly weaken your respiratory system. Air pollution, uh, living amongst a dirty city, yada, yada, yada. And this is something that I didn't know until um, until I was poking around. And this was actually what led me down the path of air pollution in the first place is when I was looking up Northern Italy demographics to just try and start to grapple with some of this data. Um, it actually, there was a whole <laughs> subsection. I can't remember if it was in Milan or Northern Italy. Um in the Wikipedia article for yeah either Milan or Northern Italy addressing air pollution. I mean that doesn't happen. It's like you weren't you're not going to see an air pollution section in Wikipedia for Fort Worth. I don't think. Um, and we're uh, a million. You know, there's a million people here in the city. Um, so that that it's crazy. Apparently, they're 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 situated in such a way up against the mountains to the north that much like L.A. Um, uh, and Salt Lake City. The wind, the wind, the prevailing winds blow air pollution from everywhere up, and then it just sits over northern Italy, and so it's got you know horrible air pollution. If um, and if you've ever seen uh, you know pictures and stuff like that, you always see in Italy and broader Italy, um, you know they they're they're constantly seemingly cleaning a lot of the concrete structures and stuff like that because they just they accumulate so much grime. Um, and that just, you know, it's something that doesn't really happen here that I'm aware of. I mean, every now and then you got to clean shit up, but, um, you know, moving on. Uh, sex ratio. It has been indicated the virus is worse, worse among men. Italy actually has more women than men, so that plays in their favor. That was, I, was, I was shocked by that. I don't know why, though. Uh, very, very shoddy death records. This was alarming. I saw this almost, uh, before, right before I published and I decided to include it because I thought it was really, really, really crazy article. Um, so it appears according to this article and I've put it in here, it was done by the telegraph. I couldn't, um, they, they cite the, the NIH, which is kind of interesting. Um, uh, but I couldn't find the original. I, I you know, through all of this report, I've been trying to dig down to like the most, um, uninterpreted data I could possibly find. So, um, here, um, I couldn't find, I couldn't find that NIH source. Perhaps it's been published now. I, I don't, I don't know, uh, or revised. Maybe it's wrong, uh, but it certainly looks to be, um, there looks to be smoke and whether there's fire will be determined later. Uh, it appears that possibly only 12% of deaths were directly linked to COVID upon further inspection by the NIH. Uh, this should make sense if the majority of the patients were elderly with a much higher likelihood of co comorbidities. So, you know, you know, an 80 year old, uh, dude going in there with, you know, pre-existing this and pre-existing that. And, and, you know, he sprained his ankle on the way in and, you know, um, and then they just, uh, chalk it up to coronavirus, which may be true or it may not be true. Um, and, but it's, it's perhaps easy. Um, the other thing too, is, if you show a lot of coronavirus mortalities and you're a hospital, hey, maybe there's a better chance of getting funding. Um, so there may be a, a number of things at play there, or it could be wrong, but uh, time will tell. Um, alarmingly lacking health care. 
So I, I looked, I was looking at this, um, the estimated deaths for influenza from 13, the season of 2013 to 2014, uh, like that winter to 16, 17 seasons. Here are the deaths, the number of deaths attributable to influenza, 7,027, 20,259, 15,801, 24,981 in that order. I mean, that's, it's crazy for, um, you know, a, a country that's a sixth the size of the U.S. to have, you know, somewhat comparable numbers to our deaths in, in, in uh, the flu. It's just bananas. Uh, so I've got that cited there. Much like Wuhan, the populace in Italy, and especially in northern regions, exhibits many of the factors that would serve to spike the curve, quickly overrunning hospitals and ICUs. However, the most concerning statistics, in the author's opinion, are the death records. It certainly appears that the hospitals are overwhelmed in Italy, but could there be something else at play? It certainly seems possible. If the 12% inaccurate death certificate statistic is true, we could use a factor of safety to calculate the new mortality rate. If we say 20% rather than 12%, just to be conservative, rounding it up, of the deaths in Italy are directly due to COVID, the new mortality rate becomes 16 or 1,625 deceased from the sample group times 20%, um, you know, to reduce it by five, and then divided over that TCA, the 225,120, and you get you, you get a mortality rate of 0.14%. Um you know, it, it's that that's in line with Wuhan. And so, you know, maybe that lends a little bit of, of credence to it. Maybe not. You know, you'd be the judge. Um, United States. So quick facts about testing using uh, the CDC's tracking tool. They issue the number of tests that they that they give per day. And unfortunately, I, I wasn't able to track if somebody if anybody can find this, uh, send it to me. But the number of positives per day adjusted back from for for date of the actual test, you know, I don't care when it was processed. Uh, I think that would be super illuminating. Um, but, uh, they do issue the number of tests that they have administered per day. Now, a lot of people I think around the country test, um, makes aggregating data really difficult. Um, so I just went with the CDC and I, there may be private hospitals that are doing it and not reporting, uh, to the CDC or using a, a test that the CDC hasn't been, hasn't approved. I don't know if that can even happen. I don't, I just, I don't understand the mechanics and I won't pretend to of how this is aggregated, but the CDC is an official source. And so I, you know, I went to it. Um, we can see the first tests were confirmed on January 18th. That was the original flyer from Wuhan to Seattle. He landed on January 15th. He was tested because he felt symptoms on January 18th uh, and, you know, obviously had come from Wuhan. Uh, and then I think it was announced on January 21st. So just sequence of events. I've verified all of that in LinkedIn here if you, if you, need, the, if you need the source material. Um, and, very, so, and then very little testing was done in the subsequent weeks. Uh, by March 1st, 2020, there were only 4,224 COVID tests. That, that wasn't that long ago. It was three weeks ago. There was only 4,000 tests done just over uh, in the U.S. that were recognized by the CDC. And so any reliance on confirmed cases by lab test for, for much of any information, but especially for trend, and this has been my concern, this is the drum I've been beating on Twitter for you know a week, um, is very uncertain territory that could give wildly inaccurate results. There can be very little doubt that the testing lags behind actual infections, likely by quite a wide margin. A quick example would be to ask a thousand Americans every day, starting today, if they have watched an XFL game. Uh, of course, you will see an upward trend as you ask more people, but that gives no indication to the XFL organization if their population is their popularity is trending up or down. It's useless data. Uh, perhaps a more accurate way, if you're forced, if you're forced to to only ask one thousand Americans every day, would they? No, I'm sorry. 
how did I word this? Perhaps a more accurate way, if you're forced to only ask a thousand Americans every day, would be to divide the number of yes by a thousand, the number polled each day, and develop a percentage and analyze the trend of the percentage. So, in other words, if they're administering a thousand influenza tests or or COVID tests a day, what what was it on Monday or how many positives on Monday, how many positives on Tuesday, how many positives on Wednesday of that thousand? That might give you a, a good um, a better or at least a better understanding of trend, but it's certainly, you know, certainly if the population is already relatively saturated, the, the number of positives, just raw, raw positives, um, is an insane metric to use for just a variety of reasons. I hope statisticians are, are, are enraged because that's, um, you know, it's no good. Um, so we would love to be more accurate, but, a, but in a pinch, this would certainly be better than tallying up the yes votes every day and calling it an upward trend. Uh, first, USA confirmed COVID notes. Yes, I already went through this. The statistics. As of March 20th, 2020, the number of confirmed cases in the U.S. is 19,650 um, with 263 deaths. This equates to an unadjusted mortality rate of 1.3%. But what is the real mortality rate? The author will assume that even though there are certainly those who have deceased without being tested, this would drive data far less than the number who were COVID affected but did not get tested. It's just a much bigger group. Um, in this instance, if the ST is 10% of the TCA, an extremely conservative number because of the lack of testing, um, then the statistical TCA we, we should calculate for is 19,650 divided by 10% um, equals 196,500. Uh, the new TCA is 196,500. The unadjusted mortality rate is, or, or I'm sorry, the adjusted mortality rate is 263 divided by 196,500, which is 0.13%. That's, you know, again, another data point that's in line with other data points. I, it, you don't want to ha- let that guide you, but it, it, it does serve as a little bit of a, a nice, you know, gut check on what might be going on. So, again, that's almost identical. So, um, uh, if that's the case, you, you know, oh, so if we say that because this more adjusted mortality rate does in fact fall in line with the things that we were seeing early on in Wuhan um, by that New England Journal of Medicine report, that means that 0.5% of the total will be admitted to the ICU, 0.22% of total will need mechanical ventilators, and 0.13% of total will be deceased. So um, if, the, again, don't that that's not firm at all. It's just, hey, maybe we should look at this. Uh to predict future action, it's vital to figure out where our population is is on the pandemic's curve of infection. If we are on the left side of the curve's apex, things will become worse. If we are on the right side of the, the apex, things will become better, particularly if the population has developed immunity, either by exposure or vaccination. Um, so, uh, uh, so where are we at in the curve here in the U.S.? Short answer, we have no idea. We simply haven't been testing. Um, anybody that tells you that they know where, you, where we are in the curve, I, I, I simply don't understand how you can back that up. Um, we know that we had a positive case on January 15th in, in Seattle, tested three days later and confirmed six days later. Could we have had cases before that? I, I've seen a lot of arguments from the, uh, uh, from the virology uh, standpoint that we could not have. Um, I, it's beyond, that's outside of my expertise. I, I, if, if that is the case, then, you know, then use that data, I guess. Um, but I, I certainly think that, you know, with, with 
the United States being China's biggest trading partner, um, and you've you've heard about all of the supply chain hiccups. We source so much shit out of China, and we source so much steel out of China. It's my understanding, um, and that's that steel region. Um, you know, either either directly to us or to factories elsewhere that then come here. But either way, it's a, it's a business relationship. Um, it, it's very very difficult for me to believe um, that from that standpoint that um, January 15th was the first day that anybody um, graced the soil of the United States with COVID. But again, I, you know, really, I don't really have any data to back that up necessarily, just a lot of anecdotal stuff. Um, But, but then again, uh, to play counterpoint to that counterpoint, everybody has fucking anecdotal stuff because there's no data on anything, you know, which is really the, the, the infuriating part about all this. But, um, so what, what we do know is the increasing number of quote-unquote positive cases that are released every day in no way correlate to the reality of what is happening with the virus. It is merely a very lagging perception of what might once have been reality. A more accurate glimpse at reality might detract the trend in a positive in positive tests to total tests on a day-to-day basis, the XFL method. Um, that may offer some insight as to which side of the apex we're on. It's not perfect, admittedly, but it's sure as hell better than just, just tracking the confirmed cases. It's fucking insane. Um Modeling and predictions, translating data from other countries to ours. So lately we've been hearing very damning reports of hospital overloading here in the U.S. in the near future. We began hearing this uh, around March 10th to March 15th in the media, so I set out to figure out what it was based on. After all, we don't really know where we are where we are at in the curve. Why now? What makes them so certain? There are some areas that were hit hard, but there were plenty that worked their way through this with, with appropriate social distancing measures while keeping businesses largely open, like Japan. I mean, Japan barely closed anything, is my understanding, and they basically just wore masks and, um, and uh, you know, kept, kept on keeping on. Um, now, I, the um, behavior of American citizens and whether you can get them to wear masks is, is largely outside of the scope of this article, and I don't really care that much about it, but... Um, yeah, anyway, so some people just kind of worked their way through it. I think Germany did really well too, uh, with an aging population, which is, which is, uh, impressive. Um, it's frustratingly difficult to find out what these reports are based on, but after querying the medical folks in my, in my network and my, per- in just my personal network, um, I had one send me a report with a graphic. The graphic shows a heat map for easy reference as to when each state will run out of ICU beds. The graphic shows our peak roughly around May 1st. That's the total country peak, which is when every state except for West Virginia, who at that time had not been reporting cases, will, according to them, run out of ICU beds. The full report and reference models and graphics can be found here, and I link this. Um, it turns out it's it's a big big wig health consultancy out of D.C., or that was my understanding of it, just perusing their website. Um, so they have an article, they have that heat map graphic that I've seen circulating, um, and, uh, they have, they actually have links to their Excel spreadsheets that they're using for, for the modeling. So click on the two hyperlinks within the article to download their Excel sheets to see the inputs and outputs of the model, which I will dive into shortly. So I was very excited to get my hands on this as it would finally allow me to understand what the model, what the medical professionals were seeing that I wasn't, I just simply couldn't put data to what I was seeing. Um, the way the model is set up is such that the quote infection model is calculated to determine the number of infected patients by applying a growth curve derived from the so far observed data. The infected patients are broken down in various subgroups based on their medical demands, roughly as I've done in this report, in order to break down how many people will need an ICU, a ventilator, a medical bed, etc. 
This growth curve is then applied to our facilities to see when we will fill up all of the beds, use all of the ventilators, and run out of ICUs. So let's focus on the infection model. Since I assume the number of hospital beds, ICUs, and ventilators per state is relatively obtainable, um, it's also most important part of the analysis because um, the, the, the infection rate is, is part of the model is, is the most important because it's somewhat unknown. Uh, while our inventory of medical supplies is, is not only known, but largely static in relation to the spread of the virus. I understand more stuff is being brought online right now, but I think right now it, it's, it's reasonable to just kind of leave that alone. Uh, so in looking at the infection model under tab four underscore infection model calc, um, of the 2020.03.16-pandemic-bed-model-underscore-select-1-state spreadsheet, the model makes the following assumptions. 25% confirmation rate. In other words, for every one confirmed case, there are actually four total. So this is the multiplier that I was applying earlier, the ST, which I was calculating at 10%. I think I gave a pretty reasonable um, answer as to why. 25% confirmation, and, and and granted, I'm not married to 10%, but 25 seems very, very high for the U.S., very high. We haven't been testing. That seems crazy. You know, again, we, we, we come back to this, or this is the struggle that I've been having in my head is um, squaring virtually no testing being done, relatively speaking, with these high confirmation rates that they're coming up with um, and the transmissibility of the disease. All three of those things can't be correct at the same time, in my opinion. I digress. 6.4 day doubling time with respect to total cases, 11% growth rate per day derived from the 6.4 day doubling time. Um, so they, they also input a total population of 6,045,680. And I think that's just a blunder. I, I think that was a, uh, an error that it appears to be, I just, on a lark, I, I looked up the population of Wuhan and that's roughly what Wuhan is. So, you know, um, they just screwed that up, uh, but it doesn't really matter for, for my purposes because, um, uh, they're not using the SIR method, which would take into account the groups of population, um, that are susceptible meaning they haven't had it. They haven't been vaccinated and they haven't, um, well, they haven't had it or they haven't been vaccinated. They, they're available to get it infected, um, which means they currently have it or recovered, which means they have their, you know, they recovered and per and for the, the purposes of this model, they would be, um, vaccinated to it, not vaccinated, but immune to it. Uh, so that's a pretty, that's a pretty common modeling thing in, in public health engineering and, and uh, epidemiology and so on and so forth. And it's, um, you know, it's like a big differential equation basically, uh, day, let's see. So here, here's the, okay. And here's the last input or the last two inputs, 39 confirmed cases. That's the initial starting point. And then the day zero or the day one of the model, I guess that's when does this curve start? Um, was March 16th, 2020. Um, in looking at this model, and I put this all in bold because I was furious when I was writing it. Um, in looking at this model, the first thing that jumps out at me is the starting point. The models start on March 16th, 2020, which is last Monday. Uh, I mean, not yesterday now, but last Monday, um, a few days before I'd been writing the article with a total of 39 confirmed cases and 156 assumed total cases based on the 25% confirmation rate. So that 4X multiplier. Uh, I have no idea why the model does this. The CDC, the CDC confirmed 4,629 cases as of March 16th and had administered around 40,000 um, tests total in the country. The confirmation rate would be far below 1%. Um, 
If you assume the confirmation rate in the model uses 25% and apply it to the number of known confirmed cases on March 20th, 2020, you end up with uh, 18,516 infected persons. Um, so the big problem here is that they're, they're, so if you don't really understand what they're doing, they're applying a growth curve to the, to the uh, medical industry's ability to, to combat it um, or to deal with the increased loading. Um, and so they're, they're coming up with these predictions of where of, of loading in May, but it appears to be based on a starting point of March 16th, but the virus had been here for two months prior. So it's, it's just bizarre. Um, so, so what I did was I basically just adjusted the chart and this episode is running long, so I'm, I'm going to summarize a few things, but so I basically just adjusted the chart and, uh, and I went to the day where they were going to have roughly 4,629 cases um, and found, uh, here, I, I read it. So adjusting for the horizontal, and that's the temporal position, the time, along the, the growth curve from the model, 18,516 infected persons correlates with April 28th in the model, in which most of the country's ICUs are predicted to be completely full and overflowing. The total, the total peak uh, correlates to March 23rd by using CDC confirmed data and applying it to this model, adjusting for case count and day zero. So that's yesterday. Yesterday is when the shit should have hit the fan literally everywhere, um, according to this model. So uh, there are many other minor inputs that I would that I would modify in order to pr- improve the accuracy of the model. But the day zero and initial starting numbers, uh, uh, starting number of the cases are so wildly inaccurate, even by strict ad- adherence to the CDC's own published data, not even using a confirmation factor, that it's not worth addressing the other items. So, and I just reiterated, predictive model confirmed cases on March 16th is 39. Uh, CDC confirmed data confirmed cases on March 16th is 4,629. This is embarrassing. Um, if modeling methods in use are accurate, but only the day zero and confirmed case count are wrong, then all hospital beds, ICUs, and ventilators across the country will be full on Monday, March, March 23rd, adjusting for proper place in the curve. Um not just New York City and Seattle, which apparently are overloaded right now. I, I, again, it's very difficult to kind of track down that data. But uh, what is more concerning is the very next day after this report was published, the NIAID director, Anthony Fauci, MD, stated in a press conference that the country should hit peak hospital burden in around 45 days or, or around May 1st is what he said, which is in which is the same date that the model predicts. He appears to be referencing either this model, another one like it, or another model upstream that this and others may be referencing. It's all functionally the same because it appears to be based on flawed inputs. And I've linked to that press conference. I think he announced it in a press conference. So um, here's so this is all like really weird. And, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff that you can derive from it and kind of assumptions that you can make or hypotheses that you can create. But I've, I've kind of done my best to stick to, you know, try to stick to data. Um, but uh, I did, you know, I did want to just check out our flu season this year and just see if we had perhaps been um, had a bad flu season, and and I and then and perhaps those were misdiagnosed, and and you know shockingly we had um, in analyzing our current flu season to see if I could find any insights, I found a few curious curious items. This appears to have been a very big season for quote unquote influenza like illnesses or ILI, as reported by the CDC, that apparently is a household name in the industry. ILI. This includes all hospitalized for symptoms that are flu-like and does not necessitate having confirmed positive flu test. 
So it means that you go to the hospital for flu-like symptoms. What are those? Like everything. Um, and, but, uh, but, and you don't necessarily have to test positive. So it's, it's crazy. So, um, well, it's not a crazy stat to keep. It's just, uh, that's a, it's leading us somewhere. Um, so in this model and I've, I've put the chart from the CDC in this article, um, Jesus Christ, we're going long. I gotta go pick up a pizza. Um, uh, you'll see that there is a huge, uh, spike in, it's kind of tough to tell if that's week 52 or week one of, you'll see how the chart is laid out. It's kind of it's just difficult to zero in without, uh, well, squinting, but, um, you'll see that there's a huge spe- uh, spike of ILI cases in either late December or early January. Um, and then it, it comes back down to a trough and then another spike in, you know, week six, seven, eight, nine of, um, of this year. Um, and, and we're, we're in a little bit of a trough. So it was like a double spike and we're back down into a trough. Um, but the entire flu season after what looks like week 51, don't hold me to that exactly. Look at the chart yourself has been the entire, the entirety of it since then has been above the highest ILI uh, of last year. Um, and in fact, I in researching, I guess 17, 18 was a really bad season. And we've spiked twice nearly to the, uh, to the degree that the 17, 18 season spiked once. So a lot of stuff here. Um, in the above chart, you can see that the number of ILIs spiked in December of 2019 and has remained high above last year's peak ever since. I think I just said this. Um, we appear to be in a downtrend after after the second apex with a minor uptick in the last week. That could be a reflection of COVID, um, an incoming COVID uh, deal, or just as easily a reflection of COVID mania, which is people hearing about it and rushing in to get tested, um, possibly claiming they have flu-like symptoms. You know, who, who knows? Uh, what is interesting to note is the lack of correlation between the above chart and confirmed hospital ra- hospitalization rates for influenza, um, with confirmed positive influenza test. That's important. A confirmed positive influenza test. See below. So I've got a chart of 1920, uh, season amongst all the other flu seasons recently showing, um, you know, hospitalization rate per hundred thousand people in the U S for, for confirmed positive flu tests. And it's a somewhat bigger than normal season. Um, it's nowhere near the 17, 18 season. Um, it's comparable to, it looks like it's going to be comparable when it flattens out here to the 14, 15 and 16, 17, and a little bit worse in the 18, 19 seasons. I guess nobody probably really cares about that, but at the end of the day, it's a fairly routine season. It's, it's a little bit larger than normal, but nothing here, nothing here reflects the spikes in ILIs. Um, in late 19 and, and in, you know, week six, seven, eight, or whatever I said of, of 20. Uh, okay. So here, this, this is probably the most important section and this is determining trend. Um, so confirmed, if you're going to use confirmed cases, as previously mentioned, the confirmed case numbers are useless to determine a trend. I believe, uh, we have no idea how many have been infected, how many have recovered and how many are still susceptible. Um, 
Pneumonia statistics. Due to the lack of testing, the most accurate but more delayed data about the effects of COVID might be found downstream. So far, it appears that the bulk of patients who perish from COVID infection do so as a result of pneumonia. Uh, Taking a look at the pneumonia statistics available through the CDC shows that the U.S. is exhibiting a normal curve through this flu season, with even less amplitude than the previous four years. Particularly notable is the large spike during the severe 17-18 flu season. It's ridiculous. Um, it should be noted that th- that to be included in this chart, patients did not need to posit- uh, to test positive for influenza. See this note, and I've got a quotation here from just below the chart on the, on the website, which is linked. Uh, the NCHS surveillance data are used to calculate the percent of all deaths occurring in a week given that uh, in a week given that had pneumonia and or uh, influenza listed as a cause of death. Um, kind of clunked my way through that sentence. Sorry, everyone. Uh, so the important takeaway here is had pneumonia and or influenza listed as a cause of death. Um, so not necessarily influenza. The PNI percentage or just influenza. Um, the PNI percentage for earlier weeks are continually revised, made, made increase or decrease as new updated death certificate data um, are receivable from the state by NCHS. So note that the statistic is not predictive. Um, but if the confir- first confirmed case of COVID uh, in the U.S. was in mid-January, it does indicate that there has not been any excess mortality due to pneumonia, at least, seen so far. And we are approximately at the peak of the season, um, uh, the traditional flu season. That's a typo. Damn. Uh, I'll fix that. Um, so if you look at this chart, um, basically it's like a sine wave. Uh, you know, the pneumonia peaks, uh, the, the chart goes from 2015, you know, week 40 of 2015, all the way across to week 10 of, uh, 2020. Um, and the percent P and I, the, the, the pneumonia statistics basically follow a sine wave, uh, and peaking, you know, somewhere in the winter and troughing somewhere in the summer, um, as you would expect. And we, uh, we, are below we've we never got above where we were last year or the year before that or the year before that or the year before that it's been a low season uh, in comparison to the last four um four seasons um and you can see you can see this i i see it's funny because i had i i say it's funny i mean it was miserable for a lot of people i'm sure but uh that 17 18 season i don't even remember that um being a talked about but it, it apparently and it's borne out in the data that was a horrible flu season jesus i mean you'll see on these charts it's crazy um so yeah we we haven't really seen anything now you could say well it's not predictive we you know we're about to see it i guess but this might be a good place to go track it and keep an eye on it um and if that continues to go down i'll, I'll, I'll certainly have some questions so the other thing would be day-to-day icu burden for tracking trend. If we could obtain the daily ICU burden, preferably the pneumonia-related ICU burden, we could begin to chart a trend and try to determine if we are on an uptrend or a downtrend. I have not been able to find this data reliably. As previously mentioned, one of the most critical factors is figuring out where we are on the curve, before the apex or after. This might this might give some insight. So here's my conclusion. Uh, the three main points, confirmed case count is not an indicator of trend in the U.S. Trend is one of the most critical statistics to understand. Um, and infection trend modeling and its application into our U.S. healthcare system needs to be updated to reflect more accurate data observed in the field. So much of the data we were working with at this stage is dangerously inaccurate. And I, I think that's a fair criticism. Now, it's it's tough in these early days and weeks because um, just good data is, is hard to come by. But when you get it, you need to be modeling on it. Um, I am calling on all the readers to be demanding the inputs and raw data of all models they see. So if you see a graphic, go check it out. Go see what it's based on. And if you can't find it, I don't like that. 
Um, the more eyes on the raw data, the more in, the more accurate a picture we have. If we were predicting a disaster across the country, what is that based on? Um, in the in looking at the data, it appears that the hardest hit locations exhibit a quote unquote perfect storm of traits that serve to spike the curve rather than flatten it. Once the hospitals are overburdened, the lethality of the disease likely rises due to inadequate care, even for those who may just need a bed and no ICU or ventilator. It's just all taken up. Um, it's not an unlikely scenario that COVID affected the elderly in Italy quickly, overloading the hospitals, which then led to an inability to treat the young and working adults, thereby increasing their mortality rates simply because beds were taken. Uh, the current locations that are struggling, namely Seattle and New York, appear to also share many of the traits, including cigarette consumption and air pollution. Anecdotally, these two cities are likely very exposed to China as the U.S. is China's largest trading partner. It's not unreasonable to surmise that these two cities have had higher than average exposure to China and specifically Wuhan. Um, than, you know, say Fort Worth. I think that's reasonable. Uh, the hospitals are quickly running out of PPE. As noted, that's personal protective equipment, um, as noted frequently in the media. And if the above data is ind indicative of reality, it, it, which I don't know, but um, if it is, it may serve to show where to direct PPEs and other equipment. There may be areas that simply won't be hit very hard, like perhaps around where I'm at, um, or hit l later rather than sooner and consent equipment to New York, for example. Some of that's, you know, some of it, I'm sure it's much more difficult to ship there. But masks, I mean, give me a break. Uh, most importantly, I am extremely concerned that many people appear to be using predictive modeling that is based on ina inaccurate inputs, most notably the confirmed case count on March 16th. This shows an absolute devastation of our healthcare system countrywide over the next 45 days as we exit flu season. The model, whether it reflects reality or not, is extremely flawed and should not be used. Um, I do not know if we were trending up or down. Um, I have my suspicions. But uh, I don't know I, because I can't confirm it. Um, how, many current, uh, how many currently have COVID? Again, can't confirm it. Um, or if we will see overly burdensome conditions in Seattle, New York City, and other places. But the data doesn't appear to indicate a countrywide overburden of hospitals to me. Um, it does seem feasible that Seattle and New York could become very burdened, however. And if equipment is scarce, perhaps it should be sent there. It's also important to note that certain locations could be trending up while others are trending down. You know, that's very possible as well. Uh, most of all, we all need to be updating models based on new data very frequently. If it appears that we are in a downtrend, it would dict dictate different actions than if we were in an uptrend and vice versa. So that's my article. Um, I don't know. Read it uh, if you if you want. Um, uh, you know, if, if you know somebody who might be interested in it, I, I think if nothing else, there's there's a lot of data that's that's. Um, that's cited. So if they wanted to go do their own study, even if they disagree with me, they, they, it's a, a quick cheat sheet to get to a lot of uh, interesting places to track this shit. Um, so, you know, perhaps do that. Um, or, or let me know if you liked it. Um, and, uh, and I appreciate everybody that's been kind of scrapping it up with me um, in comments and stuff like that, you know, steel sharpened steel. And at the end of the day, it's not about one person being right. It's about us all being right. Um, and not um, overreacting and, and maybe more importantly, not underreacting, but there are costs to both. Uh, and so the closer that you can get to nailing it, the better. Um, I am out of time, but I wanted to give some thoughts on what I think could actually be happening here. Um, if in fact the COVID threat is not quite what we think. Uh, but I think I'm going to leave it there for now and maybe I'll do another one. Maybe I'll get, maybe, maybe I'll do it with bird. Um, see if he wants to squawk about it for a while. Um, and, uh, but anyway, so yeah, again, the article is, is on medium and it's called modeling COVID dash 19 in the U S and it's by author quarantined in Seattle. And that's all one word. And the little thumbnail icon is 
a picture of the Texas state with the Texas flag in it, uh, which is super gay, but uh, don't give me any shit about it because I'm fragile right now. Volleyball standings and such. So, all right. Later, guys. Two hands on the wheel.